Good morning. It is really a, a, a gift, it's a privilege and an honor to, to be here with you this morning uh, as you're making your way to Exodus 18. Uh, very grateful uh, for the way God is faithful to be at work at Church on Mill. Uh, around Phoenix Seminary, we, uh, we hear testimonies of the way that he's working here and we, and we give thanks for you all and we appreciate your prayers for us as well. Let me say before, we, before I pray and we dive into the text, uh, one of the primary goals of preaching as I understand it is to remind God's people of what they have already heard in his word before. In other words, the burden of preaching is not to give anything novel uh, that you have not heard until, lucky you, I came in here and told you. Uh, that's when you should become nervous uh, when you're hearing things from the pulpit from a new guy that you haven't heard before. Um, so my goal in this morning's time is to remind you of some very precious and very powerful truths about the way God has set his body to grow and the way that he cares for his people. Uh, but I would just remind you what you already know, that, that my, my authority doesn't come from my title. It doesn't come from my position. It comes from my faithfulness to the word of God. And so uh, where I am faithful to God's word, follow hard after him by the help of his Holy Spirit. And where you hear things that you haven't normally heard, and you say, We've, we seem to have strayed from reminding, uh, you need to take that to your elders and talk that through with them. Because a lot of what I'm going to say uh, and I'm going to say it passionately because I believe it's true, uh, bears on your life together as a church. But that is not ultimately what I steward. Uh, your, your elders faithfully steward your life together as a church. So listen, ready to be reminded, uh, but also with your Bibles open uh, and alert to what God is doing uh, through our time together in his word. Let, let me pray and then we will dive in. Father, we come before you this morning already as we have done acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our need, acknowledging our weakness. I, Lord, confess the ways that in this week, even preparing for this message, I have been reminded of my need for you. Uh, you are a faithful shepherd of your people. You certainly will feed your sheep uh, through your word today, and we give you thanks for that. But uh, Lord, I, I am weak. The effectiveness of, of, of our next minutes together doesn't depend ultimately upon my wisdom and my strength, uh, but it depends on your faithfulness and your power and your good commitment to your people. And so we thank you that your word is perfect, it is sufficient. Uh, we thank you that your spirit is here and at work, and we invite you Holy Spirit, to come and do now what you delight to do, namely to give us fresh eyes to behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and make us more like unto him, even in the way that we live our life on mission as a church. And I ask it in his mighty name. Amen. In the book of Exodus, like in everything else in our lives, God is always doing more than first meets the eye. God is always doing more than meets the eye. In fact, the, the story of Exodus, like the story of the Bible, like the, any story that gets richer and gets better the longer it goes on, it's often the case, isn't it, that the insignificant 
details, the seemingly insignificant details, are what end up making all the difference in the end. I think we're going to see something like that happen in Exodus 18 this morning. I don't know if you have uh, read Exodus 18 in preparation for coming in this morning. I'm not going to read it all. I'll read a portion of it in just a moment. Uh, But whatever familiarity you have with Exodus 18, you could be forgiven for wondering what exactly is so exciting about this chapter. Because you've kind of been spoiled, haven't you? Uh, For the preceding chapters, you have heard some pretty high stakes, high drama events going on, right? You've been here for very long. You've been working through the book. You have met the burning bush with Moses in chapter three. That kind of set the stage for how this was gonna go. High drama, high stakes. You move immediately into a showdown with Pharaoh, let my people go. His heart is hardened, he will not do it. You move into the plagues, the 10 plagues that the Lord inflicts upon the nation of Israel so that he will get glory over the Egyptians as he delivers his people. You move to them gathered, huddled on the shore of the Red Sea, right, with the armies of Pharaoh closing in behind them and the rod of God in Moses' hand, parts the waters, the people go through, it closes behind them over the pursuing Egyptian army. That's pretty dramatic. And then you proceed to the the song of Moses and Miriam, the tambourines, the dancing, the declarations of the goodness and the power and the might of God. You've read about manna from heaven. You've read about water from a rock, hello. You've read about a a miraculous deliverance from the Amalekites who were a warlike people too strong for this group of slaves straggling out of Egypt. And just last chapter in chapter 17, the Amalekites were defeated. This is high drama. And we're just about to head into scenes no less dramatic as Moses draws near with the people to the base of Mount Sinai, thunderings, thick darkness on the top of the mountain, voice like a trumpet, don't touch the base of the mountain or you die. Then he calls Moses up into the cloud for 40 days. The people are like, and then he gives the law and he gives the plan for the tabernacle, the house, the tent in which the presence of the holy God will dwell in the midst of his sinful people. This is pretty miraculous. This is pretty high stakes. This is pretty dramatic. And right in the middle, right? Right in the middle of all of that, Exodus 18, Moses gets reunited with his family. His wife and kids come with his father-in-law. We don't know how long they've been separated, but for some time, they're reunited in verses 1 through 12. And then Jethro kind of pulls Moses, his son-in-law, aside, verses 13 to 27. He's like, son, listen, the way that you're organizing this here is not going to work. You need to do it this way. It's like phenomenal cosmic powers, right? Shrunk down into like one chapter, this itty-bitty living space, right? One tent. We're, We're going from what is God doing in the nations of the earth to what's going on in Moses' tent, do you see how we could, we could make the assumption, we could be forgiven for assuming that we've kind of left the drama, we've left the high stakes, and we're, we're kind of in a byway. We're kind of taking a little domestic detour here. I mean, it's really nice. It's nice that Moses gets back together with his wife and kids. 
It's, why, it's nice that his father-in-law got some good, any of your all's father-in-laws have good advice for you ever? A lot, right? I mean, that's nice. It reminds us that this is a real story. These are real people. This is a historical event. It really did happen. And, but we struggle wondering, like, but Paul said this was written down as an example for us, right? So what do we take away from the domestic details of Exodus chapter 18? What is there of God here for me? What is there of the ways of God here for me? I, I get that it's historical, I appreciate it, but is it theological? What difference does it make in my life? And I, I just want to suggest this morning, even before we've read the text together, that what we are going to see in Exodus 18 is in many ways the heartbeat of, of what's going to happen from this point forward. It seems domestic. It seems like an insignificant detail. What God is doing in his people in Exodus 18 is going to set them up to endure to the end and be saved, to use New Testament language. It's very significant. Let me just remind you what the prophet Elijah is going to learn at this very same mountain about 600 years after Exodus chapter 18. Elijah is going to learn, and I pray that we this morning see God is not only at work in the high drama of the earthquake and the fire and the wind that breaks the rocks in pieces. God is also at work, and, most, and often he is most significantly at work in the whisper, in the detail, in the domestic. Very often, our God does his greatest work, his sustaining work, his eternally significant work through what seems to be, in the economy of this world, insignificant. What a great text for Mother's Day, right? Often the most eternally significant work is happening in the domestic details going on in a, in a tent in the wilderness. So I'm praying that we are given eyes to see this morning the significance of Exodus 18, who God is, the way he's set his people up to grow, the way he's chosen to care for them, and I pray we go out of here singing with Jethro, right? sacrificing willing lives of obedience and joyful submission to our Savior. So here's the big idea that I think is going to open up the mine shaft that will give us access to the treasure of Exodus 18. It's uh, ver very profound. <laughs> God cares for his people through his people. That's the big idea. God cares for his people through his people. I say it's very profound, kind of tongue-in-cheek, because uh, I hope you've heard this before. I hope this is a reminder for you. And yet, if you've heard it and haven't sat for very long to consider the way it changes your life as a church, it is very profound. It's, it's incredibly powerful, this principle that God has chosen to care for his people through his people. Here's what I'm thinking as I say that. Here's what the Holy Spirit is speaking to church on mill through this ancient Old Testament story. Here's where we are tracking with the people of Israel. Like them, Colossians 1 says, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. Does this language sound familiar? Is this a reminder? 
we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love, with whom we have, in whom we have redemption, Exodus language, redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And like the people of Israel, in our Savior King, we have been given, set free now, we have been given a glorious inheritance. Paul says it's, we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit until we acquire possession of it. We are pilgrims on the way. Here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking a city that is to come. We are on the way to the promised land, having been set free from bondage to sin and death. And now, as we wait, as we walk out what Philippians 1 calls a manner of life worthy of the gospel, as we live as God's people, in other words, between the time of our deliverance from sin and our homecoming, we need God's help to live more like Jesus. We need God's help to make it on the way. Am I the only one? We need help. Who needs help? I need, I need help, right? I need wisdom. I need correction. I need reminding. I need exhortation. I need counsel. I need help. Anybody need help in here? We need help on the way, on the road. And so what I want to know from Exodus 18, it, that the story that has been written down for our instruction is, where does this help come from? How does this help come to me? How does it happen that I receive the help that I need on the pilgrim way? The answer that Exodus 18 shows me is God cares. It's the language that Pastor Chuck's already used with the Apostle Paul in his prayer this morning, right? That, that God is tenderly, gently among his people like a mother through the Apostle Paul. He's caring for his people, God is, through his people. This is the answer of Exodus 18. So we're going to spend most of our time in Exodus 18, 13 to 27, the second half of the chapter, because this is really where where we, we get to this idea of how it is that God cares for his people, not, not directly. Listen, 21st century Arizonian American, right? We love our independence. We love our isolation. We love our I don't need. And I'm telling you, God has chosen to give you what you need from him, not directly, like you and Jesus under your bed is all that you need. He has chosen to give you what you need from him through the brother, your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's his idea. That's his decision. And it's our invitation. And then very briefly, very briefly at the end, we'll circle back to the first half of the chapter and just ask the question as Jethro leads us in worship, who is this people that God has chosen to care for through one another? Like, is it just the nation of Israel, or do we, can we get in on that? So how God has chosen to minister, and then who it is that makes up this people, and we will be sent out, I pray, rejoicing in our inclusion among the people of God, and eager to obey God's design that we build one another up in the faith. So Exodus 18, I'm going to read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. I encourage you to follow along. This is God's word. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. 
when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from the morning until the evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, it's because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one and another, and I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, as your father-in-law ever said to you, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. Mark that, we'll come back to it later. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, verse 21, which is kind of like, here's how you're gonna make the people to know all of that. Look for able men from among the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their pl place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Thanks be to God for the gift of his word. I want to make three observations with you that unpack this idea of how God cares for his people. The, the, the emphasis this morning is on how, not what God is doing. God is caring for his people. The, the question I want to get at is how has he chosen to do that? The first observation is how closely the second half of chapter 18 mirrors what God taught Moses last week in chapter eight, uh, 17. Maybe turn a page if you need and just let your eyes drop down to chapter 17 and verse 13. Here's, the, here's what happened. And again, I'm going to ask you, how did that happen? Here's what happened. Chapter 17, verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, how did that happen? One true way to answer the question is just to keep reading and notice God fought for his people. That's how Joshua defeated Amalek. God won a victory. The Lord did to Amalek what he did to Pharaoh and Egypt at the Red Sea. He made war with Amalek. He blotted out their army. He is Israel's banner. He is a God of war. This is what Moses and Miriam are singing in chapter 15, isn't it? As they, they lead the nation to, to celebrate the Exodus. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord has 
become my salvation. Miriam sings, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. This is a, this is a majestic truth. The Lord is the God who redeems. God is a God of deliverance. God is the one who is awesome in deeds, who's, who is doing wonders. All of those gospel verbs, redeem, save, deliver, defeat your enemies, awesome deeds. God is the subject of all of those gospel verbs. He is at work. So how did Israel defeat the Amalekites? A true answer is the Lord cared for them. The Lord fought for them. The Lord delivered them. But you remember from last week, I trust, that that's not the only answer you need to give in Exodus 17 to, to understand how it is that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Because of verse 9, Exodus 17 and verse 9, yes, God fights for them, but now they are commanded to go out and fight. You remember this? Somebody nod your head. Okay, if you nod too slowly, I think you're asleep. Uh, that, was, that was brisk enough. Listen, if that company of men isn't chosen like God said, if that company of men doesn't go out and fight under Joshua, Israel does not win the victory. You agree with that? This is God's chosen way to defeat Amalek, is through the weak but willing right arm of his people who are going out and fighting. But we gotta say more than that even, right? Because Joshua... The tide of battle ebbs or flows for Joshua in the valley based on what Moses is doing on the mountain as that nation-crushing stick that has terrorized Pharaoh for the last 12 chapters or so is lifted again now over Amalek and God brings victory when the staff is raised in Moses' hand and defeat when it drops. So how does Israel prevail over Amalek? Well, Joshua and the guys go out and fight, and Moses lifts up that rod. We're still not done, because Moses can't keep the rod lifted up for the, for the entire battle, can he? It begins to drop. He's, he, his own weakness becomes apparent. His own limitations become apparent. And so in come Aaron and Hur, right? And they sit Moses on the rock, and they hold up his arms so that as Aaron and Hur hold up Moses' arms, and Moses stretches out the staff, and Joshua fights, God gives the victory. You tracking with what I'm saying? Did God fight for Israel? You bet he did. We're not misunderstanding here as if God has got them out of Egypt and now kind of says, you guys press on, you've got what it takes, I'll see you when you get home. From here to the promised land, you're, you're, you're fighting in your own strength. We know that won't work. Moses can't even keep his arm up. Joshua loses when the staff drops. God is our banner. God is our strength or we have no strength. We're not under any illusion there. But again, the way, that's what I want to key in on, the way that God has chosen to demonstrate his victorious strength is through the weak, willing right arm of his people. If they don't fight, if they don't go out, if they don't lift up, they don't go forward. They don't win. So yes, Moses is learning. Joshua is learning. God's people are learning. Yes, there are times 
when God will sovereignly and unilaterally, in other words, not using anyone else, but in his own power, drop into a situation and deliver his people. That's what he did at the Exodus. I know Moses lived for the staff of the sea and all that, but what did God say? Stand, be still, and see the salvation of the Lord. It's a great image of the sovereign grace of God at work in our salvation. We did not cooperate with that. God delivered us. God defeated the enemies of our soul. He defeated our own unwilling hearts and set us free. That's true. But most of the time, right, here's the lesson. Going forward on the path of discipleship, on the way between deliverance and the promised land, the usual way that God is going to win the victory for his people is through his people. As they go out and fight, as he empowers them with his grace. I think we get this, right? Are, you, are we tracking? This is, I'm just reminding you, right? God alone gives the victory, but God has chosen not to give the victory alone. He cares for his people. He delivers his people by strengthening his people to fight. And that, that just maps beautifully, doesn't it, onto our salvation. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. There's the sovereign stand and see the salvation of the Lord moment in each of our lives. If you're here this morning trusting in Jesus, it's because Ephesians 2, 8 happened to you. The God of this world held you in chains of darkness and bondage such that you didn't even want to be free. God broke into your prison cell, broke off your chains, changed your heart, and led you out such that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ adding you and you and you to his people, to his church. He's going to build his church by sovereign grace. By the grace of God, you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. It is not a result of your work so that you may not boast. You just, you just stand there and wonder at the goodness, the grace, the kindness, the glory of God. Praise God. And Paul keeps right on going, Ephesians 2 into verse 10. Now that we are saved, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So God doesn't just jumpstart the dead battery of your life and say, good, now that I've got you up and running here with grace, it's, it's up to you to make it home. You've got what you need to make it home. No, we need him every moment. We live by his grace. But what his grace looks like now, as Paul says in his own testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, is we work harder than everybody else you remember Paul's testimony? I work harder than everybody else. And then how does he finish it? We sang it. You remember? Yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. How does Paul save sinners around Asia Minor? How does God build up the church? It's through Paul working harder than everybody else by the grace of God that enables, by the grace of God that empowers, by the grace of God that attends Paul's weak and broken work. God's strength, Paul says, is made perfect in my weakness. 
This is how God has chosen to care for his people, to bring them in as we go out and share, and to build them up. It's through his people. Now, I like to imagine Moses nodding his head to all of this as he's kind of walking down off the mountain in chapter 17. It's like, yeah, oh yeah, we had kind of a mountaintop moment there, didn't we? Like there's this crisis moment and God moved. Like I, I saw a new thing about God up there. On the mountain, I had to admit I was weak. I couldn't be, I couldn't do, I didn't have in myself to do everything that I needed to do. To, to serve my people. I have, I have these limitations. Aaron and her had to come and help me so that I could help Joshua, so that Joshua could fight. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, that was quite a day, wasn't it? Uh, up, up there on that mountain, I, I can admit, yes, Lord, I, I'm not the only, the sole channel through which your people receive what they need from you. You're, you're gonna use others to bless me and, and we're gonna push this kind of all the way down. That, that's, that's really powerful. That was quite a moment there, that, that occasional crisis moment on the mountaintop. Hadn't really seen that before. Wow. And then he walks into chapter 18, and the point of 18, 13, and following is the same principle applies. Right? No longer just up on the mountaintop, Moses, of the occasional crisis moment when God is going to choose to deliver his people as his people fight. Moses, what you need to learn now as you continue to lead your people toward the promised land, is that in the day in and day out valley of the daily grind, the same principle applies. God is gonna deliver his people, care for his people, direct his people, provision his people, through his people. Not just on the mountain, but also in the valley. He's going to minister to me what I need from God through you. The parallels between these two passages are really striking. I'll just list them off. Between chapter 17 and then chapter 18, 13 to 27. That's why I say this is the same lesson. The Holy Spirit's like, I don't know if you got it. In chapter 17, Moses, I'm, I'm, I need to tell you again. I'm going to remind you again who just heard this last week. Moses is facing a challenge in both cases that lasts all day. It says he gets tired or weary in both cases, and he has to sit. In both cases, Moses chooses men of character for the task that is needful. And in both cases, these able men not only help Moses accomplish the task, but through their assistance, they are conduits by which the help, the care, the grace of God flows not just to Moses, but to the nation as a whole. And there's more, but for the sake of time, I'll stop here. These two passages are making the same point. They are mirroring, they are mirroring each other. And I just love it that Jethro's the one who gets it. The Midianite, the outsider, is the one who gets it. He, he's a type in both halves of the chapter. Jethro's the type of the right response of the people of God to what God is doing. And here, he leads Moses in this right response by kind of pressing the point home. Remember I called your attention to the fact that Jethro says in verse 19, obey my voice. He is standing, as it were, in the place of God. You hear this? God has been speaking to Moses all the way through Exodus. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. What happens here? For the first time, right? Jethro comes and says, the Lord is speaking to you, Moses, through me. 
Do you see the change? Something's different in the way Moses is going to hear from God from now on. It's a picture of what's happening. Jethro says, verse 14, Exodus 18, verse 14, Moses, or Jethro says, look, Moses, I've had my eye on you for a while, right? All the way back in chapter two. I met you at that well, remember? You delivered my daughter from those shepherds. And Moses, when you're on, you're on. There's nobody better. But you're missing this right here. The, what you're trying to do in giving people access to the mind of God, to the will of God, to the word of God is good. But Moses, the way, the way you are trying to do it actually cuts against the wisdom of God by keeping it to yourself, by imagining that God can only give his people what they need from him through you. The way God cares for his people is not only through Moses, but it's through his people. So bring the lesson from the mountaintop, Aaron and her holding up your arms. Bring that down in here to the valley of daily life, stewarding your leadership of this people and multiply Aaron and her times 10,000 chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and teach them the ways and the will and the word of God so that they may give it to the people. What do the people need? The people need the word of God. Where are they going to get it? Not just through Moses, but through now thousands of these able men. The way that the wisdom of God is going to get to the people of God is through one another. Are you tracking with me? This, this is mapping also onto the rest of the, of the redemptive historical storyline. In other words, this is what God does not just for Israel in the desert, but for the church. If, if, if Christ is the new and better Moses, and if our deliverance from sin and death is a new and better exodus out of the bondage of Egypt, has God continued operating in this way, caring, delivering, preserving his people on the way home through his people? Has he kept doing that? Has he, has he, are we seeing the beginning of just a progression here that's going to keep going? In other words, not just through Moses, not just through Moses, Aaron, and Hur, and Joshua, but through thousands of these chiefs. Like, do, do we keep pressing that any further down in the new covenant people of God? And the answer is yes. God keeps working this way. He has decided to care for his people through his people. Not just through a, a class of people, but every member of the body of Christ. Every member, which means you. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each, nobody in here is outside of that each. To each member of the body of Christ is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God knows what each of us needs, and the way that he's chosen to give it is to give you what I need. And so you minister what the Spirit gives you for my good. Ephesians 4, think of the well-known passage where Paul says that the body grows up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now listen, from whom, that's, that's Christ, that's the head of the body, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint 
with which it is equipped. When each of those parts is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we got a head, we got a source, we got Christ, and we got all these parts, we got all these members, we got a toe. And the question is, how does the toe grow? And one answer, a true answer is, the toe grows from life from the head. If the toe is separated from the body, then it doesn't grow, it dies. But that's not the only answer, right? Because like the toe isn't directly connected, immediately connected to the head. It's a member of the body down there. So how does the life of the head get to the toe? Through the other members of the body. The body grows, it's built up in love as each part is working properly, namely, in context of Ephesians 4, taking the measure of Christ's gift that we've each received and ministering. That's what, that's what pastors are for, in, interestingly enough, in Ephesians 4. It's the role of the pastors to equip the saints for the work of this bodybuilding ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Colossians 2.19 says the same thing. It's a parallel passage. Calls us to hold fast to the word of Christ. Hold, I'm sorry, hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joint and, joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So there is no question about where the growth is coming from. It's coming from the head. It's coming from Christ. But again, the, answer, the question this morning is how, right? What is the way the head has appointed his life to get to the members? It's through those joints and ligaments, through the people of God. Again, I, I don't think we're, we're not misunderstanding here, are we? This is not a, this is not a codependent vision of the body as if we, we all ultimately depend on each other as if there's one of you in here that can only, that receives from God only through one other person, and we, we become codependent on that person. No, no, none of us are ultimate for each other. We're all means. We're all members over, of the body over which Christ is the head. This is a Christ-dependent vision, not a codependent vision, but it's also a recognition that in our dependence on Christ, we, we want you, what you have for us. We want your life. We want your guidance. We want your help. We need you, Jesus. Jesus says, okay, the way I have chosen to give you what you need from me is to be interdependent one on another. The life of the head reaches the body through the other members of the body. Third observation to kind of bring it home, and, and we've already kind of cheated and given it away, but... If I lost you between the beginning and now, come back. This is, this is the payoff. What is it in the second half of Exodus 18, what is it that the people are after? What do they need? Why are they coming to Moses in the first place? What is it that's going to communicate the, 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 the help or the direction or the strength or the life of God that they are so eager to receive? And the answer is, it's the will of God. It's the word of God, right? That's what they're after. That's why they're coming to Moses. 
Uh, look, look at uh, verse 15 again. What's the issue here? Jethro says, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? What's this all about, Moses? And Moses says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. You see that? Or as it says in the NIV, the people come to me to seek God's will. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So you, you, see what, you see what they're hungry for. You see what they're after. Why are they coming to Moses? What we need to live, they, they are saying, is the word of God. That's how we know how to structure our life. The rules, the statutes, the commandments of God. What does God say about this situation, about my life? What does God say? That's the way in which I want to walk. And, and again, I remind you, to this point in the book, God's way, God's will, his word to the people has always been coming through Moses. Chapter three, the bush. The Lord speaks to Moses, who then goes and speaks to the elders. Chapter seven, the Lord says to Moses, who speaks to Pharaoh. Chapter nine, the Lord says to Moses, who speaks to the people. Chapter 12, a chapter full of very specific, significant instructions from the Lord to prepare for Passover. You remember all that from a few weeks ago? Like, there's a lot to do and just the right way, and the stakes are super high, right? Because your firstborn's life depends upon your careful obedience to the word of God. I want to know what God says about this night. Where am I going to go? Moses. Exodus 13, the same way. Exodus 16, the same thing. Listen to this, 16.23. Listen to how closely these two things are connected in the people's understanding. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. He's talking about gathering two days worth of manna on Friday so you don't gather it on the Sabbath. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So don't gather, gather today. And then it ends by saying this, the people gathered manna as Moses had commanded. You hear that? Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. The people say, we're going to do what Moses has commanded. Like what Moses says, God says. So we're going to do it. And that's, the stakes are high. Exodus 15, I'll read you this one verse in Exodus 15, 25. This is when the people are at Marah. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and you will do what is right in his eyes and you will give ear to his commandments and you'll keep his statutes, okay? Do you hear the word of God, the importance of the word of God? Like diligently listen, do what is right, give ear to his commandments, keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you I put on the Egyptians. Like those are high stakes. They just saw all that. And they're like, what do we got to do to avoid that? Obey my word. So going to the source of the word of God is super important for an Israelite at this point in their life. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want the diseases you put on the Egyptians on my household. How do I avoid it? You keep my statutes. You diligently listen. You do everything I say. Where do I find that? Moses' mouth. 
That's why they're all around Moses from morning until evening in chapter 18, right? I'm trying to help us understand what they're doing. God's word is vital for life. They die apart from God's word. And Moses has been the conduit through which the word of God has come to them. Now watch this. Jethro comes and says, things are changing. Now the Lord is telling you, Moses, through me. Like, we just read right over that, but that is like category change. A priest of Midian is telling Moses what God's telling Moses, right? Like Moses is like, wait, it's always been direct and immediate before now. Now, Lord, you're going to use my father-in-law? Yes, he is. And through his father-in-law, he's going to tell him, God's going to tell Moses to get the word of God out of Moses' mouth and into the mouth of all these chiefs. Verse 20, warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way they walk and what they must do. In other words, give the word of God to these able men, which then creates, making up a number, 10,000 more access points to the word of God in the nation of Israel. Instead of coming to you, Moses, for the word of God that is life, they can go to any of these able men and hear the same thing, the word of God, that they need to live, that it may go well with them in the land. God has chosen to care for his people through his people, and this gracious and healing and helping and strengthening care of God's people is communicated to them as more and more of God's people are able to speak his word to each other. Are you starting to see a vision for life in the church? It doesn't stop here, of course, because we're about to go to Sinai. And Sinai, we're, if you're like me anyway, you've been probably tempted to think that it's at Sinai the Lord gives the law. And yet, you would be amazed and maybe you already have been amazed because you picked up on this, at how often in chapters 1 through 18, in other words, before Sinai, the language of right and rule and statute and commandment appears. God's law has been guiding his people from the beginning. Okay, what is Sinai about then? It's not, if it's not the first giving of God's law. Sinai is about the setting down of the law of God in such a way that more and more people can know the mind of God, the will of God. They can access the word of God. Moses is the lawgiver, but Moses is giving the law to the people so they in turn can give it to their children and their neighbors and their thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. God is going to care for his people by dispersing the bread of his word to every one of his people so they might feed on the bread of life in the mouth of one another. So I would remind you of what you already know. Namely, what a privilege it is to gather on a Sunday morning and sit under the singing of the word and the praying of the word and the seeing or tasting of the word and the supper and the preaching of the word during the sermon. What a privilege, what a joy, what a, how life-giving. And yet you, you would not 
consider someone healthy who tried to intake a week's worth of calories in an hour on Sunday morning and then went away and didn't eat for the rest of the week until they came back the next week and tried to eat it all over again, like this is all I get for the week. That is not why we come to church. We don't come here on Sunday mornings to get the only thing we need for the week. We come here to be reminded. We come here to be exercised in the habits that make for healthy Christians over the week. Habits of prayer, habits of confession of sin, habits of reading the word, habits of sharing the word with one another. We come here to be reminded that God does in fact meet you in his word. That when we open the word weak and stumbling as often we are, yet the living word of God is present in the written word by the spirit and therefore he satisfies the needs of our longing heart. So when you pray the word over someone or when you speak over the phone to someone throughout the week, you can expect that there will be life-giving power. God will care for his people through his word in your mouth throughout the week. Manna every morning in the wilderness is a miracle. More miraculous still is the fact that God has given us every word that proceeds from his mouth that we need for life and salvation, and he has entrusted it one to another. Remember, remember what Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 16? Let this bread... Let this manna, let this word dwell in you richly so that you might be able to sing it, pray it, counsel it, speak it, give it away one to another for the building up of the body of Christ. So I, I ask you do, do you, know, do you know God's word in this way? Do you know his living and active word? Like, is it in there? Have you hidden it in your heart? You know, you can't give it away to your kids or your spouse, the rest of God's people. You can't give it away if you don't have it. Are you, are you men and women of God's word? Do you, do, you, do you treat this word as if it is what it actually is? The God-appointed place to meet with him, to hear from him, to be made more like him by his spirit, to be prepared, to be stocked up, as it were, to have something to give away. For the person that's going to come up to you when you leave here today and go out to lunch and need a, a comforting, encouraging, rebuking, strengthening, directing word from God. And I would ask you do, you, do you know how to receive this word in the mouth of other people? Is it just like Pastor Chuck that can give you counsel from God's word? Like have you put yourself over your brothers and sisters so that they, they aren't able, they aren't allowed to counsel you, to encourage you, to pray for you, to correct you through the word of God? Is this a dynamic that you are willing to give and to receive? That's how God has determined to, to build his body up and to care for his people is through his word in the mouth of his people. I just want to close then with a brief encouragement from the first half of Exodus 18. This is not the main point of the chapter. I think the main point of the chapter is where we spend all of our time, that God has chosen to care for his people through his word in the mouth of his people because it mirrors Exodus 17, as I said. But I do think this is the theological high point of the chapter in verses 1 through 12. It's, it's been the assumption 
underneath everything I have said so far, and it's why I felt so free to apply God's dealings with Israel to our new covenant walk. Because of what happens in verse 8 through 12. Let me just read you a few of these verses. Verse 8, Moses tells Jethro all the Lord has done to Pharaoh and how he's delivered them thus far. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel. Verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh and out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Verse 12, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And I just remind you, this is a Midianite. This is an outsider. This is a Gentile, to use that category. And this, is, this is a Midianite, an outsider, responding to God in exactly the right way. This is what, this is what God said he did the Exodus for, right? Yes, to deliver his people, but chapter 9, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, not just in the nation of Israel. And here is Jethro blessing the God of Israel for what he has done. God said that he commanded Pharaoh to let his people go so that they might worship him, offer burnt offerings and sacrifices at this mountain. And here is the first time in the text when God is being worshipped. The God of the Exodus is being worshipped with these burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's at the hand of a Midianite priest. What's the point? The point is that Jethro, unlike Pharaoh, unlike Amalek, Jethro, or Midian through him, has been brought into the worship of the only true and living God by the salvation God accomplished for his people. And it reminds us that from the very beginning of Genesis 17, the nations have always been on God's mind. God's saving work in Israel has always aimed outside of the boundaries of that one nation to include a worshiping people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And so right in between chapter 17, where Moses learns that God cares for his people through his people, and chapter 18, where Moses is reminded it's not just on the mountaintop of the occasional crisis, but in the valley of day in and day out discipleship, on the pilgrim road heading toward the promised land, God cares for his people through putting his word in the mouth of his people. Right in the middle, Jethro reminds us, verses 1 through 12, that people God cares for this way includes all of us. Includes believers in Jesus from Israel, of course, but it also believes or includes any of us Gentiles who have placed our faith in Jesus for salvation. We are all members of that one people of God who God has chosen to care for by putting his word in the mouth of his people. So yes, Exodus 18 is an old, old story. Yes, it's about the nation of Israel. God is putting structures in place here that will allow Moses to endure in leadership, yes, but more significantly will, will allow the people to endure, to use New Testament language, Hebrews language, endure in love with Jesus to the end and be saved. 
That's why I said without Exodus 18, as domestic and insignificant as it seems, it's the heart of the whole rest of the story. If that word of God doesn't get from the one conduit down into all the people of God, we're not going forward. We see the way that God means to get us home, namely by surrounding us with brothers and sisters in the local church who contend for our soft hearts, who contend for our perseverance in the faith, who contend for our obedience to our Lord and Savior. We're seeing that we belong, in other words, in Exodus 18. We're right there with Jethro, the priest of Midian, brought into the salvation that is from the Jews and now speaking the word of life to one another to build up the saints of God and to evangelize those who come in those doors but are not yet included in Christ. They do not yet know our magnificent Savior. Beloved, let me, let me exhort you, let me encourage you, let me remind you as I pray, this is the way the shepherd of the sheep, this is the way the, the king of his people, this is, this is the way the Lord of the church has chosen to edify his people, to strengthen his people, and to care for them. Would you say yes? Would you say yes to giving and receiving what you need from God through your brothers and sisters in the church? Let us marvel at his kindness and his wisdom in the way that he gets us home. Let's pray together. Father, we do say yes to you. We say yes to your way. Not only your way of saving us, but your way of making us more like Jesus as we wait and as we walk worthy. I thank you for Church on Mill and the way that they have learned to care one for another, loving your word and listening to your word as it comes from the mouths of their brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would continue your church building work here in Tempe. I pray that you would continue to uh, make these uh, saints come increasingly to reflect the moral beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, and would you continue, therefore, through them to draw many uh, to that beauty unto their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.